Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I am your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 1, Episode 1, The Proto-Indo-Europeans. Welcome to the very first episode of the history of modern Greece. It took some time for us to decide where to begin our series. We wanted to discover how ancient Greece evolved into modern Greece and all of the in-betweens. So we knew we had to start with ancient Greece. But where does ancient Greece begin? That's a good question. It turns out that historians have already classified the different eras of Greek history. There's the Bronze Age period, the Archaic period, the Classical period, and finally the Hellenistic period. These are all of the different stages of Greek history before the Roman Empire conquered them. Most of the stuff people know when they think of ancient Greece comes from the time around 480 BC to about 400 BC. But this begs the question. Before we started this podcast, what was the earliest event you knew about Greek history? Well, that's easy. The first Olympics. I knew that for a long time. It was held in the 700s BC. Well, that's better than me. I knew very little. That is just what I saw in the movies. I'd say the earliest I knew before I ever listened to podcasts was the Persian Wars, and that's just because of the movie 300. I'd seen the movie Troy, but I didn't know too much about that. I remember people saying it was a myth, but also probably real, and it kind of distorted my perception of Greek history because that movie had Spartans fighting, and it made it feel like the whole movie Troy was just based off of some old battle, and that's all. I had no idea that the actual Iliad had all the gods fighting in the battlefield, so I'd say what I knew of Troy before was completely wrong. Yeah, you probably shouldn't base your history knowledge off of Hollywood blockbusters. So that brings us back to episode one. The Bronze Age period is the most logical period to start, considering that's where the archaeological evidence begins, as far as we know and also where the old legends and myths take place. But there is another period of Greek history that goes back further. And this period takes place before the Greeks identified as Greek. In fact, it is a period where the Greeks, the Persians, and the Romans were all the same people. So you said this period takes place thousands of years before archaeological and written evidence. How is it that we know this period existed? That's an excellent question, and a perfect segue into our first episode, the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Who, or what, are Proto-Indo-Europeans? According to Wikipedia, the Proto-Indo-Europeans are a hypothetical, prehistoric, ethno-linguistic group of Eurasia who spoke Proto-Indo-European, 
the reconstructed common ancestor of the Indo-European language family. Now, if you go onto the website Britannica, you'll see that they say it's not that appropriate to say Proto-Indo-European because it hasn't been definitively proved one way or another. So they're saying that it's possible that the Indo-European languages actually came out of Anatolia. So this is definitely a contested issue that's still being studied and proven one way or another today. To really get into this subject matter, we're going to have to begin with an individual. A man by the name of Sir William Jones. This man was neither Greek, nor was he from Greece. However, he is credited with discovering a connection between the languages of the West and the Indo-Aryan languages of the East. So let's begin with Sir William Jones. Sir William Jones was born in London on September 28, 1746. He was a very learned man who went to University of Oxford and graduated in 1768. By his early 20s, he could already speak English, Greek, Latin, Persian, Arabic, and Hebrew. Now, this was the Enlightenment period, and people prided themselves on knowledge. And what better way is there to get that knowledge than learning the languages of these ancient texts? But Sir William Jones did not study these languages in university. He went to school to become a lawyer. He learned these languages because it was his passion, and some of them were self-taught. How does one teach themselves a language in the mid-1700s? I'm not sure. I mean, you could easily think you taught yourself Persian, but unless there were Persians actively walking around Oxford, I think it'd be hard to verify if you were speaking it correctly. I'd like to quickly point something out. Sir William Jones wasn't trained to be a linguist. He did it because he was fascinated by it. Are you comparing us to Sir William Jones? Kind of. He only studied these languages because he was fascinated with the classics. And we are making this podcast because we are fascinated by Greek history. Well, all of history. Yeah, I see the similarities. But uh, let's get back to the show, though, and see just how he did it. In 1783, only a few years after the American War for Independence, William Jones was knighted and appointed Poussin Judge to the Supreme Court of Judicature at Fort William in Calcutta, Bengal. Sir William Jones boarded a ship and sailed all the way across the globe to the subcontinent of India. This was the era when Britain was one of the most powerful empires on the planet and was only getting stronger. The first trading contact between the British and the Indians was made in the early 1600s when the British East India Company met with the Mughal Emperor to establish trade relations. Over the next couple of centuries, the British East India Company grew more powerful as the Mughal Empire grew weaker and ultimately collapsed. We're not going to get into too much detail on the history of the Mughal Empire and the British Empire, but it's important to note that as the Mughal Empire collapsed, the British Empire replaced it. When Sir William Jones arrived in India, 
he was put straight to work. He fell in love with a rich Indian culture. Everything fascinated him, especially the languages. The British governed over the region by maintaining the local laws and customs. The British didn't want to impose Christian laws on Hindus or Muslims or Sikhs. Instead, they would just uphold the local Islamic or Veda laws. All the British wanted was resources and taxes. But this meant if there was a dispute, the local authorities would have to bring their claims to Sir William Jones and say the legal precedents were already defined in the ancient Sanskrit texts. But Sir William Jones started to get suspicious. How could he tell if the texts were saying what the locals said they were saying? And how could he tell if he was being hoodwinked? He was going to have to learn the Sanskrit language for himself. He already knew Latin, and it was common knowledge that Latin evolved into Portuguese, Spanish, Catalan, French, Italian, and Romanian. Well, Sanskrit is like the Latin of India, but much older. It was already known at the time that Sanskrit was a very old language, and ancient texts were written in it. As Sir William Jones studied Sanskrit and the other Indian languages, he noticed something fascinating. They had a lot in common. Some commonalities in languages are the words, but Sir William Jones was also noticing similarities in grammar and syntax. Now here's a quick example that's easy for every one of us to see. Mother is a word that every culture will have a word for. It's essential and should evolve very minorly over time. The French use the word maman, and the Germans use the word mutter, and the Italians use the word madre. Now these are four different ways to say the word mother. Two are Germanic languages, English and German, and two are Latin languages, French and Italian. But let's see how they use these words in some Sanskrit languages. Now you must forgive our pronunciation. The Sanskrit word for mother is mata. The Hindi word for mother is mete. And the Punjabi word for mother is ma. And the Persian word for mother is mata. Once Sir William Jones noticed these similarities between a few key words, he started digging. And very soon, he noticed the same with the ancient Persian languages and was able to determine that at some point, all of these languages were the same. And not a long, long time ago, as in a hundred thousand years or so during the period when all humans still lived in Africa. This was some time recent, perhaps as recent as 5,000 years ago. Now, this was the discovery of something amazing the Proto Indo European language, a common source for all Northern Indians and Persians and Greeks and Germans and Latins. Sir William Jones was the Isaac Newton of linguists. Fun fact. 
The concept of a universal mother language is not something new, as the Bible speaks of a language of man from before the Tower of Babel. This religious language was called Adamic, as in the language of Adam. Once the concept of a Proto-Indo-European language became public knowledge, many scholars dedicated their lives to studying this theoreticized group of people. And this kick-started a new field of study, etymology, the study and origin of words. Etymology has proved to be another vital tool in history. But there are other ways to study ancient cultures without DNA, without archaeology, and without etymology. And that is mythology. Wait, wait! What? Mythology? Yep, mythology. Not as in, the myths are true, but as in, the myths are the same. Just like we've used language to backtrack our words and see when two languages split, we can deconstruct our religions and myths and see which ones have things in common and which ones are unique. So this is where we are going to start the history of modern Greece. Not with ancient Greece, but with the Proto-Indo-Europeans. And just so you know, the distance in time the ancient Greeks are from us is 2,500 years. And the distance in time the Proto-Indo-Europeans were from the ancient Greeks is around 3,500 years. So that's right. We are starting the history of modern Greece 6,000 years ago. So who are the Proto-Indo-Europeans? We know the Proto-Indo-Europeans lived in the western portion of the Eurasian steppe, somewhere around modern-day Ukraine. We also know that these people were herders and had domesticated animals living with them. They had sheep, and although they were probably used for food at first, their wool quickly became ideal for mending clothing, and eventually they were bred for better and better wool. Now what is the Eurasian steppe, you might ask? The Eurasian steppe is kind of like the North American prairies. It is a flat stretch of grassland that runs across the northern part of Europe and Asia. From Mongolia in the east to the Ukraine in the west. These grasslands were home to herd animals such as deer, horses, and even buffalo. The Eurasian steppe was the perfect place for herd animals. There was grass and shrubs as far as the eye could see. And if you could live off grass, then this was an ocean of food. However, the climate was unbelievably harsh. In the winter, it dropped to sub-zero temperatures, with wind chills bringing it down to negative 40 degrees. Summer droughts could see the grass drying right up, forcing great migrations from one side of the steppe to the other. For humans, the Eurasian steppe was a desolate wasteland, kind of like an ocean. The ocean is full of water and food, but it is not habitable. People couldn't eat grass. Still can't, actually. 
but we can eat the animals living on the grasslands. And as soon as we domesticated animals for herding, the grasslands of the Eurasian steppe became an open world of plenty. But the herders had to keep moving. They had to follow the seasons, and they had to survive in extremely cold winters and brutally hot and dry summers. Fun fact. There are two types of civilizations that existed throughout history, the nomadic and the settled, and they lived very different lifestyles, and their very way of life clashed. And almost every great army that swept across the civilized world usually came from the Eurasian steppe. The Proto-Indo-Europeans were the first people to domesticate the horse. Or at least it was at the time of writing this episode. We have seen articles that have come out recently that said they were domesticated 500 years before in Kazakhstan. So maybe they were the second. Just like the sheep, the horse was probably raised for food at first. But as they found out they could ride on the backs of these beasts, it transformed the community. Suddenly people could ride out into the vastness of the steppe and ride for miles and miles in any direction. Now the society that was Proto-Indo-European had an advantage over everyone else around them. Their sheep allowed them to make clothing to survive the harsh winters of the northern steppe lands. Their horses allowed them to travel farther and to hunt animals further away from their home than ever before. This led to a population increase. Based off of the reconstruction of the Proto-Indo-European language, they had a lot of words for horses and wagons. They had words for drive, wagon, horse, and yoke. And these words prove that life for the Proto-Indo-European revolved around the horse and riding. They used it for transportation, hauling their supplies and belongings. They used them for hunting, and they used them for war. Which brings us to the fact that we know they were a warlike people. They had words for war, struggle, power, troops, sword, and prevail. They had words for hunting, prisoner, brew, beer, and guest. So it's very possible to suggest that sometimes these men would come back from hunting, drink beer, and fight each other or their prisoners. But we can also tell you they weren't just barbaric brutes. The fact that they had a word for a prisoner proves they didn't kill everyone in battle. They also had a word for wine. So we know they would prepare food and alcohol for their guests. We can tell from their words that they had a religion. A sort of proto-Indo-European religion. Scientists have done a good job reconstructing the religion of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. In the beginning, there was a sky god, or sky father, Paterdeus. The sky father was an all-knowing god who saw over everything. He was separate from the sun, and was in control of the lesser gods as well as the world itself. The other gods might live in heaven, or the heavens, but Deus was the only God of heaven. Deus was a heavenly father, 
Along with the Heavenly Father, the Proto-Indo-Europeans also worshipped Mother Earth. Together, the Sky Father and the Earth Mother parented all of the lesser gods. After the Sky Father, there were the Divine Twins. The Divine Twins are so important to the Pi religion that their story is told throughout every creation myth in Indo-European culture. These twins are always associated with horses and pop up everywhere in ancient myths. In Latin mythology, they are the twins of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. In Greek mythology, they are the sons of Zeus, Castor and Pollux. In Hindu religion, the twins are known as the Esvani, and are never referred to by their individual names, but only as the divine twins who ride on a chariot pulled by horses that never grew tired. They are also said to accompany the dawn in the early morning. These twins also show up in the Baltic religions as the heavenly twins. Unfortunately, it has not been possible to reconstruct their Baltic names. Still, they are known as the heavenly twins who accompany the dawn by pulling the sun across the sky on two chariots. These twins are in most Indo-European religions, and in some instances, they seem to be associated with the morning stars. Morning stars are usually referring to Mars and Venus. They orbit very close to the sun, so they are only visible at the dawn and evening. We also know that they were a patriarchal society. They had words for king and master of the house, as well as wedding, bride, and daughter-in-law. A father would wed his daughter to another man's family, probably in exchange for something valuable, like sheep or horses. And one thing to think about when picturing old tribal societies like this is that adopting a patriarchal system was vital to the survival of the tribe. If the tribe wanted to prevent incest and the breakdown of DNA, they had to marry their daughter to other tribes. Otherwise, the girl's only option for motherhood would be to marry her brothers or cousins. And to make sure their daughters were going to a tribe that would provide for her, the village wanted a guarantee that she would be safe and provided for. This patriarchal system is still kind of alive today and is visual in our marriage ceremonies where the father of a bride will walk his daughter down the aisle and hand her off to the groom, where she gets married and changes her last name from her father's family name to her husband's family name. As the successful tribe grew more populated, it was time for them to spread out and find new settlements. And this is what triggered the first great migration of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. It's important to understand that these people weren't sent off to faraway places like colonists. They were moving further out with every new generation, trying to build their homes just a little bit further out than their families' last homes. And as centuries went on, they just grew further and further apart. And this is how the language evolved differently with every direction the Proto-Indo-European people traveled. But now we have DNA evidence to suggest that as the early Proto-Indo-Europeans immigrated to new lands, they massacred the early farmers that lived there. 
The DNA suggests that all the men came from the east and all the women were original villagers. So this sounds like an army of men rode in on horses, killed all the local men, and took all the women as wives and made a new tribe. And this theme will be reoccurring throughout history. Fun fact. This also happens in the chimpanzee families, where they will raid another chimpanzee's tribe and either drive off the males or kill them and then take the females for their own wives. It's also suggested that the reason some societies became very discriminatory against their women is because the men didn't trust the women, which kind of makes sense. I mean... Would you expect your relationship to be a happy and functional one when all of the women were captured and raped after all of their fathers and uncles and brothers and sons were slaughtered? I imagine there would be some underlying animosity. Yeah, I can see it. Makes sense. Yep. The Proto-Indo-Europeans migrated in every direction. Some staying where they were. Others taken to the plains and riding east, settling along Central Asia and others traveling further east into modern-day China. Some of these tribes became the ancestors of the Persians and Hittites, and some of these people traveled west until they came across the Carpathian Mountains. The mountain chain acted as a physical barrier for the Proto-Indo-Europeans. When it came time for the next generation to move out of the village and go find a new place to settle, there were only two ways to go. The tribe wanted to migrate west. They were going to have to go north or south around the mountain chain. Those who went northwest evolved into the modern-day Baltic and Germanic tribes, while the ones who went southwest would eventually evolve into the Latins and Celts. Other tribes from the Proto-Indo-Europeans decide to migrate south. And this branch of the pie would eventually evolve into the Greeks. Here is a list of the first major branches that spawned from the trunk of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. The first, Anatolian branch. This includes Hittite, with a written language, now extinct. The second, Tocharian branch, northwest China, with a written language, now extinct. The third, Italo-Celtic branch, Latin, Roman, and Irish, Scottish, Welsh, Gallics. The fourth, Armenian branch, it's an isolated group. The fifth, Albanian branch, another isolated group. The sixth, Hellenic branch, Greek. The seventh, Germanic branch, Old English, Norse, Dutch, High German, Low German. The eighth, Balto-Slavic. Includes Lithuania, Latvian, Estonian, Russian and Ukrainian and Serbian. The ninth, Indo-Iranian. That's the Persian and the languages of India. This podcast is going to follow the Hellenic branch of the Proto-Indo-European tree but we will intersect the story with every single branch of this tree. Around 3000 BC, or roughly 5000 years ago, 
The Hellenic branch slowly migrated south from the original tribal lands of the Eurasian steppe, and this brought them to the top of the Black Sea, in modern-day Edessa and Kherson, and eventually they migrated south into modern-day Romania and Bulgaria, and then they settled in the northern regions of the Balkan Peninsula. And as these tribes moved south, they intermarried with local populations. Meanwhile, in the east, in the Fertile Crescent, civilizations like the Sumerians were thriving and experimenting with metals when they discovered a precious compound. Either by accident or on purpose, a smelter was liquefying copper when he added tin to the mixture. And what came out was a metal harder and tougher than both tin and copper. And this metal was called bronze, and its discovery gave rise to the Bronze Age. Bronze was used for many things, from weapons and armor to tools and plows. Bronze could be used to make spokes for wheels, and now your cart could go over that rough terrain without breaking. Statues were made out of bronze, and so were pieces of jewelry and cutlery and drinking goblets. Bronze was the gold standard of a civilization's wealth, and soon everyone was trading with it. However, bronze was not a natural state. Copper and tin were different metals, and they were found in different places. Copper was everywhere. You couldn't go on a hike without stumbling across copper ore, but tin was much more rare. Tin was the valuable metal that was needed to produce this new compound. And soon trading routes were established across the world, and places as far away as Britain and China soon entered the Bronze Age. This period brought immense wealth to certain nations. Anyone who controlled trading vessels would just rake in the gold, or bronze. There was more wealth and luxurious goods in this period than almost any other time before, at least that we know of. Giant temples were constructed with beautiful gardens, while kings and lords wore gold, drank wine, and sat on immense piles of wealth. Around 2500 BC, or the 3rd millennium BC, wealthy kingdoms started popping up all over the region. Their wealth and power were built on international trade, and soon places like Egypt would trade grain to nations that solely exported metals growing the populations of these kingdoms to levels unsustainable without the trade network. The wealthiest of these kingdoms were the ancient Egyptians to the south, and in the Middle East, a man named Sargon of Akkad united the Sumerians and Akkadians into the Akkadian Empire, the very first empire in recorded history. The Akkadian Empire covered the entire Fertile Crescent, from modern-day Kuwait, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, Sargon of Akkad designed his empire to thrive off the bronze trade, which meant the city needed a complex set of rules, laws, and economics written down to function properly. Cities in the north were dedicated to mining only, which meant they didn't have time to grow their food or even protect their own homes. But it was okay, 
because the city down the river was dedicated solely to growing wheat and food, and a city even further down was dedicated solely to soldiers and protection. This was the first real empire, and it went very well, making people very rich. At this point in time, the Hellenic branch migrated down the Balkans and arrived in the flat plains of Thrace and Thessaly, in modern-day northern Greece. As they made it closer to the Mediterranean and the warm waters of the Aegean Sea, the Hellenes encountered one of these Bronze Age empires. This was a civilization of the Well, Mandolans. that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.